Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April 18th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Sylvie. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, Throughout a baseball season, you, and we've talked about this, you have those different stages, and, and as I had said a couple of weeks ago, we're in the getting to know what these this Mets team is and, and how good they are. And and then we talked about the next phase, which is trying to figure out how they can, you know, get their way to the trade deadline and, and build upon if they're in that position where they're a contender to get the pieces they need and then... It's about going and getting it done. And throughout each one of these phases, and we're so early in the getting to know this Mets team phase, there's going to be peripheral opponents. Those are not the guys across the way. They're not Trevor Story in the Rockies or Aaron Nola in the Phillies or anybody that the Miami Marlins could throw out there. They're things like the weather, which has been a big peripheral opponent to the Mets so far. And these days, there's the COVID shutdowns when teams have breakouts, unfortunately, and the Mets lose a series to the Washington Nationals. And of course, there's always the media and the distractions that they try to create. And we had a little bit of that last week 
or this past week as well. And if you look at the Mets through 11 games, and today was probably one of the more exciting wins of the season because of the way some of the good stuff that the Mets could potentially be came to the forefront. And it's not the big things. It's not the game-winning hits or the home runs. It's little defensive things that potentially could be difference makers. You know, sometimes that extra 1% is where a team wins or loses. But with all that's gone down, with no rhythm due to excessive rainouts, COVID shutdown in Washington, an offense that really hasn't even gotten out of the gate. Forget about on track or clicking, as people say. This offense hasn't gotten out of the gate. Yeah, Brandon Nemo's hitting, and, you know, I guess Pete Alonso is, is doing okay. But everybody else, you know, really has shown no consistency, especially with runners on base. You've had some nice contributions from some of the guys on the bench, like Jonathan Villar and what have you. And the bullpen still scares the you-know-what out of me. Although, I'll tell you what, one of the first tests that you're going to get out of that bullpen, you saw today, which is one-run lead, road, big hitters coming up. And this is kind of the first time you wanted to see, has Edwin Diaz built upon last year's small sample size of success? And, well, guess what? We got it in the affirmative, although it was a little bit dicey there. Almost a little bit of unluck with the dink by Trevor Story. And, of course, McMahon almost hitting one the other way out. And I think without the humidor and the cold weather, uh, I don't know. That might have been a tie game on a normal summer day, and, and especially in old Colorado. But, uh, I mean, look, there's you know, there's a lot of things that have gone against this team. And, and when you put it all together, they've had masterful starting pitching. And it continues to be all-time historic dominant. Marcus Stroman is showing you uh, that he could potentially put in every bit the number two performance. And if you remember, uh, I had said in spring training, especially after Carlos Carrasco went down, that Stroman was going to be imperative. Yeah, he was going into a walk year. I know some fans, you know, he could be a little bit too demonstrative and his vociferousness about off-the-field topics could annoy people. But the guy knows how to pitch. And you saw it again today. It's not about throwing 100 miles an hour. It's not about striking out every batter every time up. It's about location, movement, placement, changing the eye level. It's about pitching. If you know, you know, We talk about Jacob deGrom, and Jacob deGrom is on another world. We talked about that last week. I mean, he's challenging all-time great records now when you put him in the same category as Seaver. I'm not even going to you know get into the whole narrative about the wins and losses and all the stuff the media wants to talk about. Every time Jacob DeGrom gets a tough luck situation where the offense uh, doesn't do it for him or the bullpen doesn't come through, you know, we want to go back to that. I mean, we know what that's been. That's, you know, he's he's had some not-so-great luck, and if you want to use analytics to debate the luck, have fun with that. I don't care about that. But Marcus Stroman has been every bit the pitcher. When you talk about someone who's pitching, Marcus Stroman is pitching. And that is huge. And, and knowing that you have two big arms, Carrasco, who it sounds like is going to be coming back in early May, and then later on, Noah Syndergaard, the way that this rotation is lining up, a rotation that I had some concerns about because I wasn't so sure about Stroman coming out of camp. I wasn't so sure that Peterson and Lucchese could hold down the fort, and they've done okay. I mean, Lucchese obviously had the start yesterday, but... The Mets have been able to, with the help of all the weather, kind of not need a fifth starter. But I think Lo Casey will be okay. 
And, and then Taiwan Walker, who uh, has been a big surprise. So early on, the Mets dominant starting pitching. We don't know what the bullpen is yet. We're still trying to figure that out. We got some good reports uh, so far on Edwin Diaz and an offense that hasn't got out of the gate. And they're seven and four, playing over six hundred baseball. Cold weather, rainouts, COVID. Uh, you name it, the Mets have had no opportunity to get on a roll. And then they got the schedule this week, which gives them another day off. That was a scheduled day off. And funny is that next week, the week of the 26th, they got two more days off. So they don't, they're not playing a ton of baseball. And they got a ton of doubleheaders coming up, which actually later in the season might work in their favor because in theory, as you get to late June and so on, and I know the Marlins one is going to be in August, you, in theory, you have your Carrasco back, you have uh, uh, Syndergaard back, you still have Lucchese, I mean, Yamamoto is still uh, potentially someone that could start. You know, you got yourself, you know, about seven pitchers, you know, eight pitchers, that's an exciting thought. And I don't think there's anybody that believes that the Mets offense is going to continue to not, uh, you know, to, to, to have these consistent brownouts. Now, the real question about the offense is, not all offensive score five runs a game equally. You know, there's offenses that'll put in a 15-run game on a Friday night, and then they get shut down with a couple runs on Saturday and three runs on Sunday. They score 20 runs in three games. Do the math. Looks great. They're over six runs per game, but they bunch them all up. The Mets have had some really good comebacks with this offense, and they've shown some of their depth and versatility in those comebacks. But... Right now, they're not really hitting with runners on base. Uh, they manufactured uh, a ru- couple of runs today, actually, two out big hit, as well as McNeil's ground out. But with runners on third and less than two outs, you're still seeing a lot of strikeouts. You're not seeing any flow to the offense. You're not seeing everybody kind of pass it to the next guy down the line. It's not the Congo line that you want. We'll see. That's something to look out for because that, the, the trend of not hitting with runners on base that you saw last year has started off in the first two to three weeks this year. Again, there's some mitigating factors, those peripheral opponents. And that's been, obviously, not being able to play a lot of baseball. I mean, the Mets are four or five games uh, uh, behind in terms of total games played, mainly the rest of the league. So you got to feel really good where they're at. You know, the first look under the hood, the first look at this team as they head into Chicago on this first road trip you had your first sweaty Edwin Diaz save, check. They were able to get out there and win in an environment. I know the Rockies have been bad, but it's not the easiest place to play. And the weather stinks. They're playing in basically, you know, this is the kind of weather you would expect if you played a game right after New Year. So there's a lot to be excited about. And I think the little things, you talk about Stroman pitching deep and being economical about his pitches and making some big plays on defense, but what you saw in that final sequence, which is McCann with a great pop time down to second base. And more importantly, Lindor doing that quick swipe tag to just get story. I mean, it was clearly he was out. You didn't really need replay for that. But what made that play and what you knew made that play is that Lindor took, as great as the throw by McCann was, Lindor took that throw and made a quick tag. These are the kind of things you would never see defensively uh, from those kind of positions for the Mets for ages. I bet Rosario couldn't make the same tag. Uh, Wilson Ramos couldn't make that play. And I don't know if Thomas Needle could make that play. And now you've got a catcher who's not only intelligent, but could hit a little bit and a catch-and-throw guy. 
I mean, it's basically, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, overstate it here, but for years they said go out and get someone like Martin Maldonado or someone who could just throw behind the plate and manage a game. I don't care if they hit like a pitcher. McCann can hit a little bit. So a lot of good things out of the first 11 games, despite all the bad, the peripheral stuff, the lack of offense, we're still unsure about the bridge to Diaz and how that's going to look and who you can trust because everybody's had their moment. And, you know, we don't know how Louis Rojas is going to manage that bullpen, so we're, it's still a wait and see. So really right now, you got to feel good, even with all the questions and the concerns. And by no means are the Mets playing at anywhere near a championship level. I mean, they have not. But you got to feel good at the results right now because if a team could look this disjointed and still be 7-4, a lot of good things to come. Look, we're not saying they're the Dodgers. Right now, the Dodgers seem to be on another level versus the rest of the National League and maybe all of baseball. But the Mets have some really good signs and some encouraging signs, and we saw some things in the affirmative. Those are the tests that we're going to look at. As we're in, like I said, the first 60 days, the first two months, and we're learning who this New York Mets team is, and we got some really good affirmative, um, positive signs over the last few days, despite the fact that it seems like they never play baseball or when they do play baseball, for every one game, there's three days off. Now, I'm not going to make a big deal about the off-the-field story. Uh, and I really wanted to, before we get to our guest, and I'm going to get to that guest in a minute because it's a good one. And I think you're going to enjoy him. Um, I really want to keep this show to baseball. Look, we have to talk about other things when it intersects with the Mets. Like with the walk-offs last year when the players walked off the field. Or the stuff that was going on, you know... With Jared Porter, that's part of the baseball operations. You can't ignore that. But I think we're getting to the point, especially with the expose the Athletic did on Friday, where now they're really trying to attack Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen and Steve Cohen's ownership for mainly a lot of things or a lot of ways the team was managed under the Wilpon ownership. Uh, it's a lot of reasons why. Number one, I think the Athletic is trying to get clicks. Look, it's a private equity company. Uh, they clearly need to, you know, get the subscriberships that are going to uh, be broad. And maybe they feel by going into these progressive type of stories, they're going to get a broader audience of subscribers that are going to be looking for those fringy sports stories. I think there's a number of people in baseball that don't like Steve Cohen taking over the Mets and fear what he can do. And this is their way of trying to find that needle in the haystack to undo all the accolades. What did you think? He was going to get all this accolades and all this love and all this positive press pretty much since day one and that the media and other people in baseball weren't going to have their axes to grind? It's not how the thing works. That's not how it all works. Uh, I think it's patently unfair that uh, as you read the athletic report about how the Mets manage employees through their HR department, you know, ironically run by a female, uh, that this kind of proctology exam on a team is not being done to the Cubs or the Angels or, uh, you know, the Diamondbacks, teams that employed a Jared Porter, teams that employed Mickey Calloway, just the Mets, as if the Mets are the crux or the problem with every single thing that goes on uh, in front offices in baseball with the male-female interaction. From what I saw from that story, it's a rehashing of what we know. When you have young people, male and female, getting together in a, in a business environment, sometimes they do stupid things because of who they are, lack of experience. Uh, you could argue certainly under the Wilpon ownership, maybe the professionalism in, in certain areas was lacking. But I think Sandy Alderson fighting back and essentially telling the athletic, 
even though that really went made people crazy and demand that he get fired as on Friday morning. Uh, I think basically it was exactly what needs to be said. Not every offense is a criminal offense. Not everybody needs to be executed. Not every wrong over the last 50 years of Mets, 50 plus years of Mets existence needs to be blamed on Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson and be corrected. And I think this is an old story because it sounds like they were reporting this for about a month and Steve Cohen has hired a law firm to kind of go through this team and figure out, okay, where do we need to be better? It's all you could ask out of him. And I've met David Newman, and I've talked to David Newman probably about four times in my life. Not for a while. Last time was probably five, six years ago during his first tenure. And it sounded to me that, you know, he should be more careful about what he says in a business environment because everybody's looking for that banana peel for people to slip on. Sounded like he was a tough boss. Sounded like he was a guy that got things done in certain aspects. And, uh, you know, people don't always like that, especially because when you make the work environment demanding and you don't get what you want, the realization that the world is cruel with certain uh, generations of people doesn't sit well. And, you know, the athletic reaches out and let me get my pound of flesh. So to me, the story is much to do about nothing. It's a rehashment of everything. I think every organization needs to start looking at you know, what they're doing and being more careful and being more professional and realizing that you got a lot of people here that could hurt you, especially when they don't get what they what they want. But I will tell you this, when it comes to these peripheral media, salacious, page six type stories, they're putting themselves permanently on Zoom. I've told you guys that a billion times. They've permanently put themselves on Zoom because if you think the players aren't seeing these stories and saying, I don't want to be involved with these reporters, because all it takes is them sitting at their locker saying one remark, and all of a sudden they're going to run with it. Every, it takes one reporter looking back into their you know, relationships or the things they've done over the course of their lives, and, and then they got to be on the other end of this. They don't want it. So guess what? I'll be on Zoom, and, if, and I said this, and I said this when uh, I was on Twitter this week. You're getting very little postgame coverage. Get a few Louis Rojas quotes. Maybe you get one player. You don't get all the players you know, you have games where if DeGrom is not the center of attention, you're probably not going to hear from him, even though he may be a guy that you want to, you know, in the old days, pre-pandemic, you'd be able to get to his locker and get a quote. Uh, you're getting very little, and I think that's going to continue, and that's sad, but that's the world we live in, and it's not just about health and safety when it comes to the, the virus. It has to do with this is the way baseball wants to firewall the troublemakers that the media have become because it's never about baseball. But I'll, I'm going to try to keep this about baseball. And what my promise is, is that this is the last you're going to hear about this story here, unless there's a reason to talk about it. And I think other than what I just told you for the last two or three minutes, that's all it deserves. Because it's a non-story. I'm sorry, it's a non-story. And Sandy Alderson, I've had my criticisms of him. And there's a lot I could say, and, and, and we'll probably at some point bring him up again. But to tar and feather him, because he basically said, not every crime is a capital offense, which is what the statement said. And he's right. To me, no true words have been said, and that's why you don't want the media running your team. That's why you don't fire people immediately when they demand that you they be fired. Because the minute they think they got you and they run you, they'll run you around in circles. And that's why you're seeing what's going on with the athletic, and that's why they're pounding away at the Mets. And Sandy finally had to say, hey, stop. He knew they, can't, he, they cannot allow the media to run this organization. They'll run them right into the ground. One other quick thing before we get to our guest, and our guest is going to be a good one, David Krell who is an author of two really great books, The New York Mets and Popular Culture, which came out in the fall, and I've been meaning to have him on. In 1962, Baseball America in the time of JFK, 
talking about baseball in 1962 and the 62 Mets and kind of in context of what was going on in the world. But David will join me and we're going to sit down and, and, and really chat uh, about, you know, the Mets and, and how they fit into a greater scheme of our of our lives, not just just baseball. I did say something on Twitter, and if you're not following me, you should follow me at Mike Silva Media, where I got to tell you, and you, I know the long-term, long-time Talking Mets fans are going to roll their eyes, but I'm warming up a little bit to the runner on second and extra innings. I still hate the seven-inning doubleheaders. I know it benefited the Mets. It's great to have DeGrom, and you could have went from Grom to Diaz. No middle relief. It is, when you had the right starting pitcher, it takes away all the, the, the bullpen nonsense. And the games are going quicker. Let's face it, that second game uh, in the cold, I know that the Mets were swinging at everything and probably wanted to get out of there. But it, that game was going nowhere at 7-2. And even though it was Colorado, it's not the same Colorado that no lead is safe that we saw back in the 90s. But the games are much tidier, I, I have to say. But I don't want it to go that right. I think going the seven-inning route is dangerous. But I do think the runner on second is adding intrigue, interest, and action to the extra innings where maybe you would have, because if you're against a team that has a really good bullpen and, and the guys throw so hard and, and, and because of the lack of situational hitting and players swinging for the fences trying to be the hero to hit one out, uh, instead of getting 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 and no runners on, the game dragging, and potentially you just say, hey, let me see what the final score is. I'll look at it later. I'll look at the highlights. You really are sitting with the, the seat of your pants, really, on the edge of your seat, because that runner on second could easily score. I mean, look, I'll, Mets get down against Philadelphia. Uh, Alonzo comes up, boom, single, game tied. Didn't have to take a, a bunch of walks or string a rally, and then the, it spiraled from there. So it's annoying because I think maybe you could kick it back a couple innings and give regular baseball chance to actually work itself out but I'm starting to really feel like it's one of those rules for the regular season that I'm okay with you know I'm not a total non-progressive baseball fan look I'm a guy who thought they should have been a wild card 15 years before it actually happened 10 years before it actually happened I'm the one who wants them to be more progressive and I'm open to division realignment and Eastern Conference and Western Conference. There's all sorts of ideas over the years that I've perpetuated, whether it be through my writings on this show. It's for another day, another conversation. Radical ideas. But playing with the integrity of the game, the bases, the distances, the mound, I know they've done that in the past. It's not where I want to go. It really isn't. So uh, if the runner on second is my like one little trade-off where I say, hey, I'm going to not fight every battle here, guys. I'll give you something. Maybe that's the one I'll give you. Uh, I still think the three batter rule is stupid. That's a whole other thing. But you know what? That's another conversation for another day. All right, let's take a quick break. When I return, we're going to get into a nice feature segment. We're going to get to the with David Krell, author of two great books, The New York Mets and Popular Culture, Critical Essays, courtesy of McFarland. A lot of great stuff David talks about in this book. Uh, and then 1962 Baseball in America in the Time of GFK. That's a newer book. And we're going to get into, you know, why 1962, why the Mets, why baseball 1962, and why is it so important in context of all the other things that were going on in America and the country and the world with the Cuban Missile Crisis and, you know, space travel and all this other stuff. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with that and more right after this. There have been a lot of amazing scenarios during Mets history. Did you know that Mr. Met was fired? Yes, fired for a brief time. Devin Gordon 
author of the book So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, talked about Mr. Mets' short-lived replacement on the Talking Mets podcast. They actually fired Mr. Met. They fired <laughs> Mr. Met. <laughs> loving father and husband. <laughs> and replaced him with a mule. A live, actual mule that they named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, because they wanted a symbol of unglamorous grit and determination to be the symbol of the Mets. And they they ended up, it turned out, and this only occurred to them later, the demise of Metal the Mule um, was brought on, um, because it turns out that uh, mules need to be fed, and they require care and feeding, and you right. have to store them in humane facilities, and all of these things cost money, um, whereas you can pay Mr. Met 9 to 5. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back, and joining me, he's got two really great works out. Uh, one, it's long overdue having him on the show. Uh, David Krell, he's a member of uh, Sabre Out in New Jersey, also an author, a lawyer as well, attorney, I should say. Uh, the New York Mets and Popular Culture, Critical Essays, that came out uh, in the fall by McFarland, and now a new book, 1962, Baseball in America in the Time of JFK, and I thought both were relevant. A lot of talk with Mets history with 1962 now with a new Mets owner. People are starting to get a little more nostalgic. And obviously the essays uh, about the Mets is interesting. So, David, welcome to the program. And, you know, for those that don't know, you did the similar type of essays with the Dodgers and the Yankees, who are iconic franchises. And, you know, when the Mets come up in context of those two teams, I think of like you knock down these historic hotels and you put an amusement park with neon lights so I'm curious, how did the Mets project compare to doing the Yankees and the Dodgers? Much different, I would think. Well, the Dodgers book, Our Bombs, is about the Brooklyn Dodgers up to the point where they leave for L.A. That's a book that I authored. And after that came out, I asked McFarland about doing a Yankees in popular culture book. And it took about a week for me to call them back and say, I think this is too big because I'm not an expert in architecture if I talk about the stadium. I'm not a film historian to talk about Pride of the Yankees. And my editor said, make it an anthology. You be the editor. Recruit people to do the essays. So I did an essay about George Costanza on Seinfeld and his tenure with the Yankees. And you know, Mike, when you're doing a Yankees in popular culture book, you know There'll be a chapter about Ruth, about Gehrig, about Mantle, about DiMaggio, and so on. The difference between this book and the Mets book, the New York Mets and popular culture, is that it's a much more diverse offering with the Mets. Because if you and I co-hosted a conference at the New York Hilton on Yankees history over three days, you would have the topics that I just mentioned. Nobody's going to talk about the Yankees between 65 and 75. No one's going to talk about the New York Highlanders slash Yankees between 1903 and 1923. But a Mets conference for three days, you will get people talking about the 62 Mets. You will get people talking about the post-Seaver years, 77 to 82, and how bad the team was, but how we still have affection for the team. So the Mets book has offerings like the history of Rhine Gold Beer 
Sports Phone, which is one that I authored, a great paper call service in the 70s. Loved it. I, I, when I saw that, so, 9761313, and I'm 44 years old, that chapter, as soon as I saw that come up on the table of contents, I knew what it was. Now, there's a lot of people that would not know. Right. But uh, I hate to interrupt you because I was going to bring it up. Nobody knows. Like today I got up. I got on my iPad, MLB.com app. I watched the Mets game yesterday. I wanted to see what went on in L.A. or whatever. When the Mets go on the West Coast and I can't stay up, uh, the next morning my phone gives me an alert. Mets won 4-3. Mets lost. Whatever. Highlights, videos right here in the palm of my hand. Right. The excitement and the anticipation as a young teenager calling 9761313 what happened I, it's hard to describe and 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 you tried to do that in your essay so thank you i mean that was the goal of the book i mandated every essayist to tell me something i didn't know don't write anything i can find on wikipedia write something new come up with a novel approach so we had just uh, this diverse offerings not only the mets and movies but the sports phone one that I mentioned, Ryan Gold, Kingman, my favorite player. We had the same initials. We had the same name. And Charlie Vassalero, who's a good buddy of mine, he did a presentation about Kingman at the 50th anniversary conference at Hofstra. So I immediately called him and said, would you do this? Would you contribute an essay? And he came up with a topic that was Kingman as pop culture, Kingman as an icon. Even though he didn't play for the Mets all that long, Sure. Considering uh, the lengthy career that he had, he was only in New York for about five years, but he made such an impression on us right. that we still have great affection for him. David Krell, author, two great books, one about 1962, the year as a whole, and uh, the New York Mets and popular culture. Uh, going through anybody who opens the New York Mets and popular culture and looks at the table of contents, you know, the, you mentioned the, the Dodgers. And I mean, there's these great books, historic books written about the Dodgers, the Yankees are this icon but the Mets the Horace Clark years on the Yankees they don't want to talk about it you exactly. just mentioned Dave Kingman uh that's the charm I mean look I had Devin Gordon on recently and I know losing and the charm of losing that gets old and sometimes it gets to become cruel how that's played out in the media but what's cool about the the Mets is as you go throughout the history the imperfectness is that you can talk about Dave Kingman mm-hmm. in a way where that's an imperfect player that's such an interesting uh symbolic player Bad era of Mets history, one-dimensional player, not the greatest guy all the time, but people identify with those Mets teams because they remember going to Shea Stadium, cutting out free tickets on the back of a milk carton or whatever, and and seeing a club that they loved, and then how much sweeter it was 10 years later when they won the World Series. And, you know, that's the charm, I think, of, of, of what we are starting to miss a little bit in baseball with all the numbers and the analytics and the fantasy and the gambling, I mean, which is all important stuff. But it's funny because I think that this book could bring some of that back, at least as I was going through it, it brought that kind of concept back to me. Thank you very much. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to tell people, especially younger folks, this is the way it was 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. This is, this is the mess. This is the history. And as you and I both lament and mourn, we don't have that reflected at the stadium. So when you walk into the stadium, you are struck with the Brooklyn Dodgers history, not the nearly 60 years of Mets history. And it's a rich legacy. We don't have that. So things like this book, things like Devin's book, um, there'll be more Mets scholarship in years to come. 
we need that because we need new angles. We need fresh approaches to the team. And if we can ignite some interest, if we can foster some enthusiasm for the team's history, I think we'll go a long way to getting more people in the stands, more people talking about it. And as Steve Cohen takes over, it looks like that will start with the Sieber statue. Absolutely. And I know, you know, he's, he's got uh, Mike Piazza back in the fold. They're trying to do a ton of stuff with, with history. And the one figure I think that gets overlooked, and you bring her up in the book, in an era where we're trying to bring highlight to diversity in baseball, the lack thereof, or things like that is, you know, the Mets were owned by a, a woman in the 60s, yeah. post-Mad Men era, when that was, you know, it's, it's, and I have to say, as a lifelong Mets fan, it never registered with me all these years that they had female right. ownership in a time where that wasn't even something that you could imagine. And she loved the team. Obviously, her family was, and maybe that's the, the, the issue, her family, after she passed, were a problem, uh, as well as the people that they had in charge. And maybe that tarnishes it a little bit. But I'm glad to see that because I think this is an important part of Mets history that hopefully as they get past the Seaver statue and some of that, they can highlight like the Mets. And I think we'll talk a little bit about as you get into 1962, they were, they're a very progressive team, you know, in a lot of ways. And uh, I don't know. And I know they got a lot of issues in the media today, but you know, when you look at their history, they've always been ahead of the curve, kind of like a, a counterculture team. I absolutely believe that, Mike. And Joan Payson deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Right now, there's only one woman who has been inducted, Effa Manley, who co-owned the great Newark Eagles of the Negro Leagues. Joan Payson deserves to be the second woman inducted. Uh, She comes from the Whitney family. She had plenty of money. She was a member of New York society. She had been a minority stockholder in the New York Giants when the Giants moved to San Francisco a couple of years go by. And she has the opportunity to invest in the New York Mets franchise. And you've seen the pictures. She's down at the dugout. She's right there talking with the manager, talking with Gil Hodges, later Yogi Berra. She went to the stadium. I mean, this is a woman who who had one of the biggest art collections in the world, who helped fund hospitals all over New York. And she just loved baseball. It was more than an investment to her. It was a passion. And Leslie Heafy authored that essay about Joan Payson's philanthropy, which I thought was incredibly important for people to know, because it's not like she did it to get noticed or get her name in the paper, but she did it to promote the art world. She did it because a hospital needed to be built or a wing needed to be built. So I I was very glad that Leslie took on that responsibility and, and authored that piece. Uh, David Krell, author, Sabre member, has two great books out at David Krell on Twitter, uh, davidkrell.com. Check out his website. We're in the era of City Field, and City Field's a beautiful ballpark. And as the fans continue to come back to the to the stadium, I, I believe will be a great home field advantage as it was in late 2019. But uh, as someone who grew up at you know, going to Shea Stadium, uh, and, and I wasn't that sorry to see it go because I thought it was time for something new. Everyone had a shiny new ballpark. Why can't the Mets and the Mets fans have this? But I think as we now look back and, and your book t- talks about Shea Stadium in many different ways, mm-hmm. Shea Stadium could go down as I know it's not the, the, the nicest looking ballpark and it had plenty of issues, but it hosted iconic non-baseball events, mm-hmm. concerts. Um, you know, from a popular culture standpoint, Shea Stadium transcends just – the 69 World Series, Bill Buckner, 
and uh, the final game at Shea. And you, you get a little bit into that. You're, you're spot on, Mike. The essay about the concerts was authored by three professors from LaGuardia Community College. And uh, th- those people are Derek Stadler, Alexandra Rojas, and Elizabeth Jardine. So they talk about the Beatles and their iconic performance at Shea, and they trace the history of concerts at the stadium. And while I'm reading it, I kept coming back to this thought of why not the Yankees? Why not Yankee Stadium? Why not Dodger Stadium? Dodger Stadium was new in the 60s. It was built in 62, or it opened in 62, rather. Why not the Astrodome? Debuted in 65. Why not Wrigley Field? That's pretty iconic. There's something about Shea Stadium that was new and fresh and exciting, even if the team wasn't. Even if the team was not successful, there was still something about Shea. And there's a, 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 a musician who's quoted who said it was the top of the mountain. And that's because of the Beatles. It starts with the genesis of that starts with the Beatles and coming out and being introduced by Ed Sullivan. Uh, They, they have a, an indelible, you know, link to, to Mr. Sullivan because of the 64 appearance, but the, the concerts at Shea were so memorable. And if you talk to somebody who went to a Springsteen concert in this area, they'll likely say they saw him at the Meadowlands or they saw him at Shea. And it's just interesting to me that Yankee Stadium was not a desired target for rock and roll. No, it's interesting. For all the success that the Yankees have had on the field, Mm -hmm. when you look at uh, charm in terms of uh, welcomeness, in terms of stadium, broadcasters, you bring up Bob Murphy, who did not start with the Mets. And the Mets have been lucky, you know, with Gary Keith and Ron and Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner, who's not even a a player that played for the Mets. Even the early days of McCarver, a guy who was criticized on a national level. But, I mean, I have fond. I thought McCarver was great when he was with the Mets. Lindsey Nelson. Uh, I feel very lucky to have, and and doing this, you know, part of of me as a young kid growing up, I didn't have cable. New York wasn't cabled up when I was in the 80s everywhere. So my experience with sports was sports phone, WFAN, Bob Murphy listening to at least half the season on the radio, and, uh, you know, you talk about Murphy in a book, but the Mets have really been lucky from a standpoint of the broadcasting aspect to to be iconic. And in some ways, now, no offense to John Sterling and Susan Waldman, who have their own icon status. Um, I think the Mets have taken the cake. You know, I, I don't think I'm being at a, at a school or overly biased saying that. Well, I, I think it depends on who you grew up with. If you grew up in Detroit, you're going to say Ernie, Ernie Harwell. You- grow up in Southern California, you'll say Vince Scully. If you grew up in Chicago, you'll say Harry Carey. If it's Philly, it's Harry Callis. But I, I feel very lucky to have been exposed not only to the, the people that you just mentioned, but I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So I was exposed to Phil Rizzuto, Frank Messer, and Bill White. Yep. And their chemistry was just sure. charts. You know, the banter between Phil Rizzuto and Bill White was and is unparalleled in my opinion and and when the thunder starts you know phil leaves the booth and bill over the bridge going over the bridge bridge. they would do that and in a lot of ways david keith and i and maybe this is crazy but i feel keith hernandez is kind of heading in that phil rizzuto territory and i don't think it's contrived see with guys like phil rizzuto that's who they were 
When you start to try to contrive, and that's what always drives me crazy about modern media, is we try to create sanitized versions of iconic people. I think Hernandez is kind of going into that that realm a little bit. Maybe he'll never be Phil Rizzuto because of who can be Phil Rizzuto, different type of person altogether. But it's interesting you bring that up because I think there's some rapport between the current booth and what you mentioned with Bill White and and Rizzuto and what happened. Absolutely, Mike. You know when you watch a Mets game and it goes into extra innings, one of them's going to be talking about the LIE and it's usually. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. David Krell is uh, joining me. Uh, I'd be remiss because this is a book about the Mets and pop culture and the Mets have been represented in movies and frequency comes up city slickers would always, I think for me as a kid, city slickers with Billy Crystal, the Mets hats, like the first time you're like, Oh, the Mets, you know, and that's in the midst of the Mets on this, you know, great run. And and then for a while, the Mets hat wasn't cool and it was all Yankees hats, but the Mets have been represented in many different aspects of pop culture, whether it be music movies and, and anybody who picks this book up, you know, will get that flavor as well. Jermaine King is a professor down in North Carolina and he wrote the essay on hip hop and the Mets. And my response was, what about the Yankees? And he said, why do you say that? And I had to think for a minute and then I said, well, Jay-Z, he's always wearing the hat. He's sure. a prominent member of that genre. He's all over the news. He's all over entertainment news, certainly. And Jermaine said, David, give me an opportunity. I will prove that the Mets have as strong a link to hip hop as the Yankees, if not more. And he did. And one of the things, Mike, that he did, which I think was so genius, he gave a primer about hip hop. So some people might think it started in the 80s, some people in the late 70s, but he traces it back to its, uh, it, its origins at a party. And from there, a, a very concise, uh, a, a concise explanation of the genre and how it became popular. And then he gets into uh, Queens and, and Queens-based artists and other, other indicators of hip hop. That was an eye-opener to me. And that's something you're not going to find in many books about baseball. So as I say, this kind of ran ran the gamut. Donna Halper wrote the essay you just mentioned about Murph. I was hoping someone would talk about Lindsey Nelson, but I was thrilled to get something about any of the broadcasters, right. especially one of the big three from years ago, whether it was Kiner Nelson or, or Murphy. But there's nothing like Murphy when you're driving down the shore or driving to the Hamptons or running around doing errands in the summer and, and you're hearing Murphy call a game. Uh, that, that's, your, that's what you remember from years ago. It's part of your, your makeup. It just takes you back when you hear his voice. It takes you back to that certain time. And I think that's true of all broadcasters. Uh, who, who can't remember? Listening to Bob Murphy growing up, fasten your seatbelts for going to the ninth inning. You know, nobody does that anymore. You know, yesterday Edwin Diaz comes in, you know, four three lead Colorado. I thought of Murph, fasten your seatbelts, we're going to the ninth inning, that kind of thing, and 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 what have you. When you talk about the Mets, when it comes to music and hip hop, you know, look, that late '80s Mets team had an awful. And I think that was recently an article. Maybe it was the Athletic. I can't remember rap album that came out. But you also had, you know, young. African-American stars and Doc and Daryl. I mean, the Mets, again, uh, you know, kind of ahead of the curve compared to their very, uh, I guess, conservative counterparts across town. So it should be a surprise, I guess, as I'm listening to you, the Mets, you know, in hip hop and modern music, you know, with that 80s team. And even though they were awful at their own, you know, hip hop album, so to speak, uh, it makes sense in a lot of ways. 
Absolutely. And you mentioned the 80s. Paul Hensler wrote the essay about the 86 Mets, and his term was swagger. And I sat down, well, I didn't sit down in person. We talked on the phone, and I, I said, Paul, don't forget what this book is about. It's about popular culture. Think about what else was going on in the 80s. It was a decade of swagger. J.R. Ewing on Dallas, Alexis sure. Carlton on Dynasty, Gordon sure. Echo in Wall Street, uh, the Bill Murray character, Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters, Lifestyles <laughs> of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. There was a, a certain swagger, maybe even an arrogance throughout the decade, because in the late 70s, this country was just psychologically worn from the hostages in Iran and double-digit inflation and two, uh, two oil, oil crises, uh, Nixon resigning. I, we had just been through the ringer. So when the 80s begin, it's not, um, it's not a time of joy per se, but as we get further into the decade and the stock market's rising, and that's reflected in, in so many different uh, episodes, even the Michael J. Fox character, Alex B. Keaton on Family Ties, he had a certain swagger about him. There, there was something smarmy but lovable. And that defines the decade for me because that's when I grew up in high school and college. Those are my years. And I look back very fondly on them. But there were things there that wouldn't fly today. You'd never have lifestyles of the rich and famous. Sure. You'd never have the swagger that the Mets had today. It was just a different time and a different ethos. Yeah, much more workmanlike, much more about process, much more about um, you know, putting the work in and, and the analytics and things like that. David Krell, author, joining me. I, I want to get into 1962 because I think, again, like I said, with the Mets embracing their history, we mentioned Joan Payson, but I think the birth of their team uh, is an interesting story because no other team's expansion year is ever looked at that way. But what did you, and I always like to ask this, is there something that you learned that you had no idea going into this project? Maybe something that you take away and say, wow, I never knew that about the Mets, the Mets and popular culture. Is there one thing that stands out to you as you uh, look back at, you know, what the final product is here? Well, in terms of 1962 in general, um, what we learn about the sixties from watching television it's usually reruns and the reruns are usually sitcoms, Green Acres, Gilligan's Island. When, when you're in the late seventies and eighties, that's what you're watching. If you're homesick from school, that's what you're watching. When you come home from school, it's I dream of Jeannie and Bewitched, the month, right. et cetera. What I, what was so surprising to me, Mike, is when I started to research the dramas of that year, how hard hitting they were. Route 66 was on for four years it's about two young guys in a Corvette traveling across the country and getting involved with different, different people and their problems. Well, the first episode of 1962, which I talk about in the book, is about them going undercover for the FBI to take down a white supremacist. You can make that script today. Sure. You can produce that sure. script today without changing a word. Yep. And, and that's yep. frightening. That is yep. so when, well, history when, repeats itself, David. I mean, look, the things we see today, I've talked to people, you know, the last crazy 12, 15 months we've been through, yes. you know, uh, and as I look at your book and read the things and, and I, I, re, I you know, recently during the pandemic, I was watching the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, movie about Kennedy. And it's amazing, you know, the precipice of things that are going on in our country's history, right? You know, that you don't really realize how, how serious they are until after you look back and what have you. And I think 1962, all this, including sports, all kind of 
sounds like it converged together and was the genesis and, and the motivation behind you actually talking about that situation, that era, what have you. Well, it, it originally began as a book about the Mets and the Colt 45s. And I was in a writer's workshop at Media Bistro, which is a continuing education school in New York. And I had written the Dodgers book uh, from that workshop, Our Bums. I had uh, gone through the, uh, the rejections and the, and the notes and uh, everything in that class headed by uh, an agent named Ryan Fisher Harbage, who was just a fantastic guide into the publishing process. So I came back with this other idea, and Ryan said on the first night, I know you're a baseball guy, but books with broader topics get broader readerships. Consider that. So I came home that night. I Googled. There were some things I knew about 62, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I started to find all these different subtopics and story possibilities, so it expanded. And when you read the book, you'll have a a chapter about the Mets, a chapter about the Colt 45s the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees, those are the primary teams, you know, in that year, because the Dodgers and the Giants had a world, uh, a playoff, which was rare. You had the Giants and Yankees with an epic World Series, and then you had the debut seasons of the Colt 45s and the Mets. And for the Mets, people were so eager, they didn't care, at least not not the ones I talked with. They didn't care that the, the team was so bad. They were just excited that the NL Stars would come back that they'd see Willie Mays in the polo grounds again, that they'd see Sandy Koufax pitch again. They were thrilled. And for Houston to go from being a minor league city to a major league city was great because they had never been exposed to major league players before. So now they would see Sandy Koufax for the first time. They would see Drysdale and Mays for the first time. It's interesting because as you go into the late 50s into 1962, we look at the league now where they're looking to expand teams in Canada. There's always been talk, do yeah. they ever go to Mexico City? But up until when the, Yank- uh, the Dodgers and the Giants left, there's not much west of the Mississippi. And we look at the West Coast now and, and, and Texas and all these places that have all this population. And I know it's 50 plus years ago, but it's not that long ago. And uh, sometimes you, you, you don't realize how close to history uh, as a modern fan, as a modern person reading about it, that you are about how all this stuff is new. Like when you look back 100 years, 200 years from now, we're kind of like how we look back at, you know, some exactly. of the uh, things that you're like, wow, look at how different the world was. But we're living in it. And, and I'm reading it as I'm going through, your, you know, this book. I'm like, wow, think about the sports landscape, like mm-hmm. how the NBA expanded in the 90s. And now I look back and go, wow, that, I was part of that. I was a young fan as part of that. Like some ways I think baseball was kind of making its change in the 60s, maybe not from a media perspective, but from just expanding. And, and the Mets are somewhat symbolic there. And it's, you talk about the love. I mean, I still think to this day, what other expansion team, even the Astros, Colt 45s at that time, Nobody calls the 62 Mets like the Mets bullpen has been historically bad. They're 62 Mets bad. Like they've become kind of this like in its own way, as negative as it is, its own like, you know, Xerox copy, you know, moniker, so to speak. So it's interesting. And I'm, I'm sure you saw a lot of that as you were doing the research for 1962. Absolutely, Mike. And the, the theme of this book really is progress. This is when everything changed. New York gets a team to replace the two that left. Houston gets a team. We're going into space. John Glenn becomes the first astronaut to orbit the Earth. There are things going on in Hollywood that had never been done before. Politics with the movie Advising Consent, 
racism with To Kill a Mockingbird. There were certainly topics involving uh, or movies involving these topics, but not to this degree. And you had alcoholism in Days of Wine and Roses. And then there's a chapter about literature, about the books that came out that year and how progressive they were. But regarding the Mets, absolutely, there's something about playing in New York and there's something about being a Mets fan where we embrace the entire history. Uh, For someone like Devin to write about the losing teams, Mets fans will buy that. Mariners fans aren't going to buy a book about the Mariners losing. Astros fans aren't going to buy a book about the Astros and the Colt 45s losing. We embrace everything. And I I am thrilled to go have the opportunity to go through the Hall of Fame player files and find out uh, things about players I didn't know before, like Joe Christopher. I had heard about Choo Choo Coleman. I didn't know too much about him. Sure. And to go line by line and player by player through baseball reference and see what kind of players they were. Frank Thomas, another one. So it, it was a real privilege as a Mets fan, but also as a baseball fan to chronicle that, that chapter. And as I've read, when I have looked at old um, or look backs, guys like you, members of Saber, who who are recapping that era. I mean, they didn't go into this thing trying to be bad. It's not like tanking. I mean, it's not. I mean, people look today. Well, the Mets were trying to tank. Mets did a great job of tanking without tanking. George Weiss, big time executive. Casey Stengel. For whatever people think about him today, looking back, maybe he wasn't as good as we thought because he had the horses. Iconic manager. You know, Richie Ashburn. Frank Thomas was not a bad player. Roger right. Craig, just a couple of years earlier, was a very good pitcher. This was not supposed to be a tank of Palooza. And, um, you know, I think that's the misperception that, and, and even up until, and I think today it's a little different because as you can see, the Marlins won very quickly after they became an expansion team and Colorado and Arizona, and, you know, maybe not Tampa, but there's a lot of differences there, but you can come into a league. Maybe you'll be bad for a year or two, but you can be pretty good pretty quickly with the right plan because they understand what it takes to win. The right. Mets had a way different plan, and for forever, whether it be the NBA, the NHL, anytime a team came in, expansion team, you didn't want to lose them because the 62 Mets set that precedent of expansion team's bad, bad for a long time, and, and you have to earn your way to being good, and you have to earn your way for about a decade. That was not the, that's not the case now, and, and to a certain degree, the Mets pioneered that, albeit, I think, accidentally. Mike, you know as well as I do, probably more, that the term lovable losers comes up when you're reading about the 62 Mets or Mets of the early 60s. And that is such a mistake because it's not like they went to lose and they shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, well, we're lovable. There's nothing lovable about losing. There's nothing positive about losing. They went out, they went on the field every day. They tried to win. Some of these players were past their prime. Some of these players only had 62 on their major league resume. That was the only year they were in the show. So you had journeymen, you had veterans. It was just the way that it was, but to get points on the board as in terms of having an expansion team, that was really the main, uh, the main purpose. We'll worry about growing later, but let's get that media market. It was incredibly important for major league baseball to have a presence in New York besides the Yankees. Yep. And the other part of 62 in the Mets, and I've been doing this more recently, I, you know, as you can see, I'm on video here talking to David. I, I, I fancied up my office during the uh, offseason to kind of 
you know, kind of make it more of a ode to Mets history in certain parts. And the polo grounds, mm-hmm. um, not a, you know, not, not a ballpark looked at like Ebbets Field. No. Not even looked at like Shea Stadium. No. But I've always been fascinated by old ballparks because I, I go on, I see the photos of them. I always like to see what's there now. I, I just my thing, like, what's, how's Tiger Stadium now? What's, what's it look like? You know, the area, what do they make it into? The Polo Grounds is the oddest, I think, ballpark, maybe yeah. in the history of Major League Baseball. Oddest ballpark. Don't get it. Don't understand how they did it. Maybe it was built for something different. But there's a crazy charm to it that I think gets lost. Um, maybe because it's just, it, it's the shadow of Yankee stadium. Maybe it's that, you know, maybe nobody had a uh, nostalgic uh, view of Harlem back then, but I think it's totally overlooked and uh, you know, maybe it's not Yankee stadium. Maybe it's not a cathedral, but just, just looking at those dimensions alone, geez, could you imagine Dow strawberry down the right field line? You know, like just look at that. So but it's just strange. Think, don't you think Mike, that has a lot to do with the Mets yep. the, playing there for two years Because if they hadn't, then the Polo Grounds as a major league ballpark ends when the Giants end their season in 1957. So it's quite dormant as far as baseball goes, or at least major league baseball. And when the Mets come in and you talk to Mets fans of a certain era, they will be reminiscent. They will be nostalgic about the Polo Grounds because it didn't really matter at that point where they played. They had to play somewhere and wherever they play, that's going to be home for Mets fans for however long it's going to take to build the new stadium. And it looked like it was uh, a little more than two years to get that off the ground, to get Shea, uh, to get Shea built and stadium ready. So I, I think the Mets of 62 and 63 have a lot to do with that adoration and nostalgia involving the polo grounds. As I'm talking to you, and as we talk about these two projects and we wrap up here, you know, I, I hear all the things about baseball being in trouble and, you know, look, I see my nephew and I see what he's into and, and I know he's not the same as who I was at that age, but I still know he's playing baseball. Right. And I know all it takes is one, whether it be if it's the, a generation of fans who identify with the 96 Yankees or a generation of fans who identify with the 86 Mets, you know, the era I grew up in. But, you know, listening to all the different eras, the different stories, the different connections to pop culture. Uh, no offense, the NBA, I'm a huge NBA fan. I know there's tons right. of NHL fans in the audience and, and football's this crazy thing every Sunday, but I have a hard time believing baseball will die or go the way of horse racing or boxing right. as we talk. And maybe you and I are the wrong era. I'm in my forties and, and maybe I'm the wrong era, but I hold out hope because, you know, there's just so much more than just balls and strikes and home runs and launch angle. And we just encapsulize that over 30 minutes or so. And I'm wondering if you feel the same way, because I'm not hopeless about it. I wish that someone in the media would talk more about the good stuff and stop trying to fix it and create all this, right. you know, because what we're talking about, you, I don't think I could do with the Knicks. I could do a different type of segment with the Knicks or with the Rangers or with the Islanders, right. but not, not to the degree I think we do here. And, and maybe this is baseball bias, but as we wrap up, I want to get your thoughts on that on the way out. I think you're on target, Mike, hundred percent. I think we are in danger of uh, being on a precipice because if you look at Sabre, uh, a lot of guys are in their 70s and they're telling me, David, we won't be here in 20 years. You have to do it. You have to get younger people involved. And it's just not the same. Uh, You have players, the best player in your hometown is now playing on a traveling team. That player is flying to cities to play. Well, what happens? Every suburb in America had 
one or two great players in right. Italy and you wanted to play with them. But if they're going to be gone, what's the point? And sure. parents are not going to want to risk injury for the kids and the kids, you know, baseball is a game of failure. And when right. you have a culture for two decades now or more that's been built on everybody gets a gold star, then kids don't know how to lose. They don't know how to get up and go back to working out, practicing, trying to do better the next time. That's what life is. And if you hit the ball three out of 10 times, you're a star. Well, that means seven out of 10 times you fail. And there's a coddling aspect. There is a loss of history aspect. There's a lot of blame to go around. But I mean, you see that the the book 1962 is published by University of Nebraska Press. The New York Mets and Popular Culture is uh, published by McFarland. You go to their websites and you see an abundance of offerings of baseball history. Uh, Just an abundance. Your summer reading list is set in about five minutes just by going to the shopping cart. And I want more people, especially younger people. And when I say younger, I mean people under 40 to get a hold of one of these books. It could be mine. It could be someone else's. But start getting immersed in the history because this game relies on history. And as we said at the beginning, I really hope that Mr. Cohen changes the rotunda. You can honor Jackie Robinson. You don't need a mural dedicated to Dodgers history. We have Seaver, we have Matlock, we have Kuzman, Piazza, DeGrom, Kingman. Uh, We have so many different moments, whether it's 69 or 73 or 86 or 2000. We have so many great moments in Mets history. We need to honor that and reflect that. So when a Mets fan walks into City Field and is taking a stranger, not a stranger, but uh, a friend who's never been to a baseball, that friend should know exactly where he or she is. And right now, if you took somebody and that person didn't know where in the country uh, he or she was, and you put that person into the rotunda, the thought that would come to mind is Dodger Stadium because all these pictures of Jack. The the Mets are along along the line now in history where you could do that. Now, if this was 1984, it would be the 69 Mets and that's all. And I think growing up in the 80s, I didn't realize how young the Mets are. I mean, that's the thing. The Mets are starting to get to that level where, you know, now you have a history. I mean, Todd Pratt, not a, a big-time player, but has an iconic moment in Mets history. What a great way to walk into that rotunda and see him with the, the going around the bases. I mean, how, how many people remember where they were? And then Steve Finley went up, and, 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 he, and he didn't catch that. Andy Chavez, I know that those are not championship seasons. I know it's almost like in this society, first losers look that bad, but – uh, you know, you talked about the summer reading list, and I, and I really mean this. Like part of the baseball narrative, the 162-game grind is the day in and day out, the mm-hmm. failure that eventually are little wins that lead up to something big. Right. But throughout it, enjoying it. I remember as a kid, my dad giving me a Thomas Boswell book or Roger Angel, The Boys of Summer. Again, this is the 80s, so those are still kind of n- not new, but they're still relevant, I guess, in a way that maybe it's harder to do that today. And then it's not just, you know, the fantasy baseball team. And I know I do those things, too. But I think that there's a way of enjoying the game and, and more of a well-rounded way that I hope that obviously the work you do, the guys at Sabre, these two books, the New York Mets and Popular Culture, as well as 1962 Baseball in America and the time of JFK. And by the way, uh, just because you went to school and learned history, not a bad way to look back. I, I've recently read some books on the Revolutionary War. There's things that you can learn, even though you've heard it 72 million times 
everybody has a different take. And I think that's important. And I, I think that's what you tried to do here a little bit in the 1962 book specifically. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you're, I, I agree with you in terms of history. I read The Winds of War and Warren Remembrance by Herman Wook on vacation. And if I had read that in high school, if I'd read those books in high school, when the yeah. series came on ABC, yep. I would have been a history major because I sure. learned more in, in those books than I had ever sure. known before. And what's scary is somebody posted on Twitter the other day, we are now as far from the eighties as the eighties were from the forties. That's, you know, I've thought about that. I've thought about it. Think about, I remember, and I'm going to, and I know I'm keeping you longer, but I was thinking about this recently. I went to old timers day with my dad and my brother in 1989, uh, Saturday Mm -hmm. afternoon game, Mets giants. I still remember it almost caught a foul ball from Dallas strawberry came in the first near foul ball experience. And I remember Nate Colbert was there and, you know, whoever had, they had the 69 Mets and these just these old guys that are like way past. And then I'm talking recently to Glennon Rush on the show and Mike Piazza and the guys that I don't think they're old. I don't think, but they're as far away from now that I, that those guys in the 69 were in 89 and it just puts context. It's amazing. And I feel like 1998, 1999 it's like i was graduating college it seems like yesterday it's it's very strange how history repeats itself in the context we could put things as we look back and we're also losing mike the oral history we're losing the people who saw ted williams play who saw joe dimaggio play we're losing that um the the myth the lore the legend and there's nothing like somebody telling you i was at the perfect game that don larson threw I was at Jackie Robinson's last right. game, or I, I went to Ebbets Field during his last season. We are losing that, and we need to chronicle it. We need to embrace it. And I, I really hope that this is a, a resurgence of history. I see some wonderful books out there about baseball history. And as you know, baseball touches everything. There's Absolutely. baseball merchandising, baseball films, baseball civil rights, baseball politics, baseball geography, baseball real estate, baseball business. It covers sure. every single aspect. So for anyone who's listening who says, well, there's so many books about the Mets. I, I'm not going to write one. There's mm-hmm. always something an new. Angle. There's, there's always, always an angle. There's always an angle, always a yep. sliver that you can kind of wedge yourself into. And I, 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 it was really delightful for me. It was such a, a, a privilege to work with the people on the Mets book because I learned something in each and every essay. I, I went in blind, you know, I, a clean slate. I know what I know. I know how I would do it. I want to know how they would do it. And each one that came in just made me think in a different way about the Mets, whether it's Casey Stengel in marketing, the 19th century Mets, et cetera. Um, the, the, uh, the West Wing was the other essay that I wrote about two characters in that show. One's a Mets fan, one's a Yankees fan. And when I thought about writing about Josh Lyman, who's a Mets fan, and talking about those episodes, I said, wait a minute, Toby's a Yankees fan. And if you look at their personas, they kind of fit. Yep. The stereotype, because yeah. Toby's always not entitled so much, but he expects to win each and every time. Josh is more optimistic. He's more hopeful. And when sure. you get off the six train in the Bronx, right outside Yankee Stadium, Yankee fans, as you know, Mike, they saunter, their chest sure. out, their shoulders are back. Sure. They don't really say anything. But if yeah. you take the seven train to Queens, 
you don't have a foot off the subway train before you're shouting, let's go Mets. And you're joined by about two dozen other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. The walk, the walk up the platform, you know, from the LIRR or the seven train over to what used to be Shea stadium, now center field, uh, city field. Um, it's, it's, it's one of, it's, it's an interesting thing. And definitely baseball, I agree with you, imitates life in so many ways. So what's next for you, David, obviously the books, again, the New York Mets and popular culture, critical essay that's been out for months. Uh, we're a little late having you on, on that, but 1962 baseball in America in the time of JFK, another great look back from a multiple aspects, not just Mets, but baseball and history. What's next for you? What do you got coming up? What do you want the listeners to know about? I am working on a book right now for Roman and Littlefield called 1966 baseball and America in the space age. So similar to the structure of the 62 book where I'm talking about cultural issues and social issues, but focusing also on the hallmarks of the 66 season Orioles, Orioles sweeping the Dodgers. So Baltimore starts its dynasty LA ends its dynasty. You you also have angel stadium debuting. You have Bush stadium debuting. You have Ted Williams calling for the induction of Negro leaguers into the Hall of Fame. That was revolutionary. Nobody of Williams' stature had stood up and said, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, these guys deserve to be included. They were overlooked until that point. And then when you got into the early 70s, then you did see Paige and Gibson and some other folks start to be recognized. David, we could go on forever. Let's do this again. Great work. You've been generous with your time. I uh, you. highly recommend both these books. Keep in touch at David Krell on Twitter and davidkrell.com is the website. Be well, my friend. Thank you again. Take care. Let's go Mets. David Krell. Uh, good stuff. And uh, check out those books. I've been meaning to have him on for so long. And um, it's just one of those things as the off season got busy and I'm glad I waited because now we're able to kind of talk about both of his works and give both of it its due and whatnot. So anyway, let's take a quick break. When we wrap up, I got a funny sports phone story for you. I, I'll, I'll share it after the break, and uh, you guys will might enjoy it. Maybe you won't. Who knows? But we'll wrap up. I'll tell you a funny sports phone story. Uh, you're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, I'll tell you the funny story. Welcome back. Final thoughts here. I'll tell you the funny story about 9761313, the uh, sports phone. So sports phone, anybody who's my age group, I'm in my 40s, anybody my age group or earlier, remember sports phone. That's your internet before there was internet. There was no app. There was the idea that you were going to be able to watch a game through your sling box on your phone or your iPad. That was about as foreign as, you know, anything. I mean, the Internet was a cut. I mean, when I, you know, the Internet it was 1995 was the first time I got on late 95 when I was going to college where I first got an AOL account, was able to do dial up Internet. 
So nine seven six one three one three is where you went and you got your scores. You know, it's mainly you're a Mets fan. Your West Coast games, you didn't stay up. You had to get it either that or you had to wait for the twenty twenty update on WFAN because they back then they would do updates every twenty minutes, three times an hour. So anyway, uh, you know, if you didn't have access to a radio because there wasn't any stream back then, you had to get the you know sports phone. So uh, this is just funny. So I I I wound up getting convinced. In 1997, 97 NBA playoffs, and it's game six. It's right after the Knicks had the brawl in Miami. The Knicks are up 3-2 in the series, and they're coming home to the Garden to play the Heat to try to win to move on to the conference finals. And I'm a big Knicks fan, so I get roped into going to a prom with somebody who didn't have a date. And I think it was at the Waldorf Astoria or something like that. I can't remember. Nice, big-time place in the city. I think it was the... Waldorf Astoria. So nice, you know, nice night out, whatever it may be. I didn't want to go because the Knicks were playing the Heat, and that me was way more priority than this, you know, being the plus one here for this prom. So anyway, what I said, all right, you know, I'm going to go to this thing. I'm going to miss the Knicks. I think the Knicks are going to win, and, and they're going to go to the conference finals. And then, all right, I'm, it's going to be all Knicks Bulls after that, and that's going to be the focus. I'm not going to, you know, make any plans to not be anywhere but in front of a TV watching the Knicks in the next series. Let them finish out the Heat. They've been up three games to one. Well. Anyway, so I'm calling nine seven six one three one three from a payphone throughout this whole event, leaving this poor girl on the dance floor and whatever it may be. And the Knicks are up. Knicks are up six. Knicks are up ten. Knicks are up twelve. Knicks are up about you know whatever, midway through the fourth quarter. And I'm like, all right, they're in pretty good shape. Early fourth quarter, whatever it may be. Um, getting late. Look at the clock. I'm like, you know, the game's probably over now. So I go back to the payphone to nine seven six one three one three. I think I had to use a calling card to actually use it. So I'm using a calling card that I bought to pay for the 9761313. And I hear the final score. You guys all know Knicks lost that game. I think Alonzo Mourning had a big fourth quarter. And, and it, I, I, the only thing I could describe out of a scene from the scene in Goodfellas when uh, Jimmy Conway, the De Niro character, went out of the diner to the payphone to, to talk to Pesci's character and find out if he was made. And when he found out that he had been... Uh, you know, basically knocked out, for lack of a better word. Uh, and I, he took the phone and he banged it on the thing. That's me banging it on the thing in this swanky, uh, you know, event. And someone says, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm not. But there I am, like Robert De Niro, after he learned that, uh, you know, Joe Pesci's character had been whacked, uh, you know, getting all angry because the Knicks, you know, had lost to the Heat in that game six. And then you guys know what... Had happened after that. But anyway, that was sports phone was the way only way to get the, the score. And that was a big deal. And, and you heard, you know, that's one of the essays of many things that David Carell talked about. And what was a really fun uh, segment, which I hope you enjoyed, went long. And uh, as we go through the baseball season, like we talked about, it's not just about going through the team and the day in and day out and the debate and the exit velocity and all that other stuff. It's also about taking a step back. And, and, and looking at different aspects of the Mets and enjoying the baseball season in its narrative format. Like when I we were just talking about reading books connected to the team and the sport and really immersing yourself into the, the theme and the spirit of what the baseball season is from April to October and the postseason and what have you. Plenty of time to get deep in the weeds and, and do those hard-hitting one hour where we're really diving into it. Right now we're just we're in the early stages, the, the shallow end of the pool, so... We can do some of this stuff. So I hope you enjoyed uh, David Krell and, and definitely recommend checking out those two books. 
whether it be the New York Mets in popular culture or 1962 baseball in America in the time of JFK. And like he, like I said to him, I think you're going to see under the Steve Cohen ownership a much bigger emphasis on Mets history. And I think it'll start with the Seaver statue, which we all know is coming soon. And there's going to be more Mets Hall of Fame induction announcements. I know that for a fact. So you guys will be listening to that uh, and learning more about that as the weeks and days and months are to come. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. But anyway, we went long today. We're out of time. I hope you enjoy this. If you could want to check me out, of course, you go to the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. We'll be back with another podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. Postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.